My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. You've caught us in the fourth week of a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been an enjoyable thing to talk through because as I've studied and prepared and prayed through what we're going to talk about, I have felt the Lord uh, even renewing my own heart. And my hope is that would be happening to you as well. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, you're welcome to go there and kind of hold your place. We'll begin there in a moment, all right? Acts chapter 2. Now, we've called an audible a little bit. We were going to begin a brand new message series next week, and uh, we're actually going to extend this message series for one more week. There are a couple more things I want to talk with you about that have come up in the life of the church as people have asked questions, and that actually brings me to our first action item today. Pastor Joseph told you about uh, your Connect card earlier. It's the card that uh, I believe I have one here. Yeah, it looks just like this, so I've got my name and email on it because I'm a regular attender. I do that. But if you have questions about the Holy Spirit, what we've been talking about, um, I'm going to invite you to write those down here where it says prayer requests, praises, and comments on the back. Make sure we can read your name. And uh, you're welcome to put those in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of the service today. And uh, next week, as we're finishing up this message series, if we see a common thread of questions or one or two stand out, uh, I'll be glad to entertain those. And again, the best way to do that is to write them right here. I'll get them. And if for some reason you forget to do that, you can certainly email them in, ben at fourcornerschurch.com. And we'll start with some questions from the audience uh, next week as we finish up this time together. So um, I was about uh, 24 years old and uh, had just really been in ministry um, not very, very long. Um, I had kind of started when I was about 17 doing ministry, um, but I had only had a job where it was my full-time thing for about a year. And I was going to seminary and doing work in a church, and it was an incredible experience for me. But one day I get a call from my senior pastor, who my boss, and he says, I need you to go down to, and he named the, the facility I needed to go to. It was a hospital, um, a, a high-security hospital, actually, where sometimes people who had emotional or mental distress would be put for their own safety. And so I was living in Tampa. He says, I want you to go down, downtown to this facility, and I want you to visit this young lady uh, who I knew. Her name was Beth. Beth played in our band. We had an orchestra, um, and she played trumpet. And uh, he said, Beth has gone through some stuff, and I want you to go see her. And he says, hey, before you go, have you ever gone into a place like this? And I'm on the, I'm on the phone. I'm like, no, I've not done that. I've done all kinds of hospital visits, but nothing like this. And he said, hey, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, you're going to have to go through like a metal detector. You're going to have to take off your belt and your shoelaces. Anything that could be used uh, by any of the inmates in there for self-harm, they're going to take that away from you. And then you're going to be monitored the whole time you're in there. I'm talking to this young lady who had, um, because of a series of things going on in her and the way she was processing it, decided that her best option was to end her life. That's why she was in that facility. And so technically she was put in there against her will. But she has asked for a pastor to come. I'm out of town. I need you to go. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll do this. And I remember getting in my car and driving from the north suburbs of Tampa down to downtown. And it always took a while because the traffic patterns there were interesting. And so I had quite a bit of time to think and pray. And this is pre-GPS you know, GPS and internet and cell phones and all that stuff. And so I'm driving and kind of praying and thinking, I, I don't have any idea what I'm going to say. I have no idea what to do. So the whole time I'm driving there, I'm feeling this anxiety just kind of ramp up a little bit as I do this self-talk. All right, now, wh why am I doing this? 
you know, this is like next level. Somebody, somebody with a completed graduate degree or 20 years experience should be going in and doing this. This is the conversation I'm having with myself all the way down the interstate. I pull off, I go to the facility, I'm in the parking lot, and you can just tell by the, the, the feel of the place, the look of the place, that this certainly is a high security place, and so that ramps up my own anxiety a little bit more. So I thought, well, I'm gonna do what I encourage people to do all the time. Um, I'm just gonna pause. It's amazing, the power of the pause from time to time. I'm gonna pause, and I'm gonna ask God to come alongside me in a special way for this. That's what I did. Before I opened the door, I left the engine running because it's Florida and it's hot, so the air conditioner's on, and bowed my head. God, I don't know what to do. I have no idea what I'm gonna see, what I'm gonna experience. I don't have any words of wisdom to offer here. I don't know really what I was expecting when I, when I prayed. I, I, I think that maybe in the back of my mind I was hoping that I would have this amazing infusion of a sense of God's presence that didn't happen with this prayer. I, I thought maybe that I would get some profound insight or wisdom you know, in the moment, maybe a prophetic word or something. Didn't happen. So I kind of, you know, God, I really need you. All right, here we go. Turned off the car, opened the door, walked through. Sure enough, had to go through a metal detector, take off my stuff, put it in a bin, the whole thing. And then escorted, because you can't be alone. I'm escorted to this room. There she is. The person who escorts me to the room is standing in the corner of the room. There's a little table. Um, and and uh, I say hi to Beth. She recognized me. Um, I didn't know what state she would be in, and she had bandages on her arms. And man, just the anxiety. And I said, Beth, we love you. Uh, help me understand what's going on. She just put her head down and um, didn't say anything. Which I, I suppose didn't take me off guard, but then she didn't say anything for several seconds. I don't know, have you ever been in one of those moments where like three seconds feels like three minutes? That's, that's kind of what this was like. I don't know how long it was. It felt like eternity for me. So I said something again. I said, hey, um, I don't know if you didn't hear me, but you know, just help me understand what's going on. And again, she's just silent. I'm like, oh, we're in one of those moments. It's all on me, and I'm not equipped for this. So I said, after a few more minutes, it felt like an eternity. And I said, I'm just going to pray. If you don't want me to do that, just tell me to stop. And so I bowed my head, began to pray out loud, God, now, in the car, it was all about me. Now it's about her and me. God, we're not sure what to do here. I, I didn't know if she felt that way. I just assumed. We're not sure what to do here. But I know this. If we've ever needed you, we need you now. God, this is beyond my ability or her ability to make sense. So would you, would you come and would you begin to do your work here in this place? And again, it wasn't like, wasn't like the atmosphere changed or the temperature changed or you know, but something did happen in that moment. It's hard for me to put fully into words. But inviting God to come in that moment, I don't know if she was praying along with me or not, but something shifted such that my anxiety instantly dropped. Now, whether she knew that or not, I don't know, but it just, it literally dissipated for me. 
So that's very subjective. It could be very psychosomatic. I, I don't know. I, I don't know mechanically what was going on. All I can tell you is my anxiety dropped. And I walked through the prayer. God, I don't know what all is going on in Beth's life, but she's your child. And this is not your plan for her. You have so much more for her. And what normally for me, and if you've been around me a lot, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor who one of the things I'm known for is I have short prayers. Like if you, ask, if you take me to dinner and you ask me to pray, it's a good thing because it's going to be about 30 seconds. You ever go, you ever got like a pastor or, or a real spiritual and they've got 30 minute prayers? That's not me, all right? So normally for me, it's a 30 to 45 second prayer, but I bet you I prayed for five, six minutes. I didn't have my, I wasn't keeping a watch, right? But, and it didn't feel that way to me. And anxiety's gone, and I'm just speaking from my heart. I couldn't even tell you what all was said. But I had the sense that something profound was happening. Kind of got to the end. I said, amen, because that's what you do when you end a prayer. It's kind of the signal to everybody, you're done. And I, I opened my eyes, and I, I lift my head up just a little bit. And when I did, she's looking right at me. And she said to me, why did you pray those things? That's the first word she said to me. Why did you pray that way? Why did you pray those things? I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? She said, some of the things that you were saying, like I'm God's child, and she named and, and a few other things. I said, well, I was just really speaking over you what I know the scripture says about you. You know, the things that we hear, uh, Pastor Lee, that was a guy I worked with. Things we hear Pastor Lee saying all the time. I said, but Beth, I really believe it's true. She said, I didn't want to talk to anybody today. But when you begin to pray, I felt my heart soften. And I tell you that story, not because there's something profound in me. It was one of the scariest and most anxiety-filled experiences I've ever had in ministry. It was early on. I didn't have a lot to go off on. But while that is locked in my mind how I felt, it was another time, at the, at the same time, it was, it was one of those experiences where I knew for certain, to the best that I can know, you don't have to know it, it was for me. But I knew for certain that God was doing something beyond my own ability. In that moment, I knew that there was a power that I didn't have. It wasn't mine to command or control. If I could have, I would have gotten a hold of that power when I got in the car to, start to make my way down there. If I could control it, that's when it would have happened. I couldn't control it. But something profound by the Spirit of God happened when in prayer, words that were in alignment with Scripture were spoken and in a very emotional environment, and God did something profound. It's one of the early steps in my ministry development. I was in school at the time working for a pastor who had a development mentality for me, but it's one of those moments where I really got a glimpse of the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, some good news. Beth um, was in there for a week or so, got past the immediate moment, had some ongoing counseling, about two Sundays later, I saw her at church, and she came up and gave me a hug. And a couple years later, she graduated from USF, the University of South Florida, right down the road from the church. I got a, uh, a notice of her graduation, and she was doing really, really well, last I heard. Well, that moment was a moment that was probably special for her. For me, it centered in me a reality that I had been wrestling with my entire spiritual life. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer? Certainly for a pastor, but also just for a, at the time, a husband. Um, Jill was 
um, pregnant with Ellen at the time, so I was wrestling with what it was to be a dad and all that stuff. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? When we started this church about 15 years ago in three weeks on a food truck rally, we'll celebrate our 15th anniversary when we did. One of the things that I knew right away is that there were two big limitations in my leadership. So I had this big vision I wanted God to do. One was that I would not have all the leadership capability to do it all by myself. We would have to do it in teams. So this church has always valued ministry in teams. It's always been bigger than me. But the other thing is I knew that no matter how good our team was, we can't do spiritual work without the Holy Spirit, without God showing up. I mean, we could put on a good show, get enough talented people, verbally articulate people. We could put on a show, but a show doesn't change hearts. What changes hearts is the flow of God's Spirit reaching out to people. Uh, Now, a show can move an emotion, but a a show cannot change a human heart. Only God, by His Spirit, does that. So like the anxiety I felt driving down to that mental care facility um, is is similar to the anxiety and just the the sense of the weight of starting this thing that I felt. So much so that I actually went to see my local uh, doctor. I went to see my doctor about just some, what turned out to be early signs of an anxiety attack I was having in the days before we launched this church. That's how much faith and power I had right there. I about shut it down three days before we launched. That's how I was feeling. That's the truth, friends. I'm not even kidding about that. So he's like, uh, no, there's nothing wrong with your heart. You're having the early signs of an anxiety attack. What's going on in your life? I'm like, well, I'm about to launch out on this massive endeavor, and we have no idea what to do. He's like, calm down. You'll be fine. Not when I was like, there a pill or something? You know? No, you're going to be fine. So in similar fashion, I found a new respect for the power of prayer and the work of the Spirit. And over and over again, over the last 15 years, I've been reminded of the power of God's Spirit at work. And sometimes it comes in dramatic display. There's been a few of those. For me, this is my subjectivity, it very often comes in in a unique, overpowering, almost overpowering sense of calm in the middle of what should be chaotic. I think for you it could look very, very different. But one thing I know that I hear consistently from heroes of the faith, those that have gone on before but have left their journals or books that you read about, those that I know that are alive today or were alive recently, I had enough time to talk with them. It's a similar kind of thing. Spiritual giants have this in common, that there is a deep respect and a profound sense of the need for God's spirit to flow. In fact, it seems like the bigger the spiritual work, the more the sense of the need that it's beyond me. This is not a new thing in Christian life. This is normal. In fact, the only times in my life where it seems like I'm not aware of it is just when I'm not really attempting to do much for God or I'm not wrestling appropriately with what it is to walk by his spirit in the life that he's called me to. It's almost as if I'm distracted by other stuff, then this gets us... This thing uh, quiets in my heart, but as I wake up to the reality of all that God wants to do, this thing turns up its volume at the same time. I think that's normal, by the way. And so the apostles, if you were to have them up here and they were telling their story, here's probably what they would say. You know, Jesus told us that we shouldn't really try to do much ministry until he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, there would be a power that would come upon us. 
It would be a power that would make us witnesses in Jerusalem, our home area, in Judea, kind of like Jerusalem, maybe the county. Um, Judea is kind of like the state in Sumeria, the next state over, and then to the whole parts of all the known world. But we shouldn't really try to do the stuff that he told us to do, called us to do, until God gave us the power of the Spirit to do that. When Jesus first stepped out into his public ministry, he engaged John the Baptist. And here's some words that John the Baptist said. It kind of harkens back. All four Gospels record this. John the Baptist said, hey, guys, I'm baptizing you in water, but after me, there's going to come one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to latch his sandals. And then when Jesus began his ministry and, and moved forward in his ministry, he reminded people consistently that this Holy Spirit was coming. And then in Acts chapter 2, we read the coming of the Spirit. It's on your message notes. It will also be on the screen. Here's what our Bible says. On the day of Pentecost, that's 50 days, Pentes, 50 days after the celebration of Passover. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. That's the followers of Jesus. He's been on the cross. He's resurrected. He's told them to wait until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like a rush of mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then if, you, if you're interested in the rest of the story, it's a fascinating story of what happens. But this is that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon believers. They, they were already believers and followers of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit gets poured out them in a special way. And when the Luke, the theologian, doctor, and travel companion of Paul writes about it, he chooses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to call that a baptism of the Spirit. Now in Luke's day, baptism was an, a specific practice where you were washed ceremonially clean. John the baptizer, John the Baptist, would hold people underwater for just a moment and bring them up, and it was a sign that they were being washed. So baptism literally means immersion, to be immersed, to be baptized, to be immersed. Baptizo, I was dunked in Greek, all right? And so when Luke, by the Holy Spirit, calls it a baptism of the Spirit, he's basically saying you are dunked into the tank of the Holy Spirit. When that happened, it revolutionized the followers of Jesus. And there was Peter, who was timid, and when he would get bold, he would put his foot in his mouth. It was an incredible thing to behold, because he could very quickly just ruin the mood. Very, very quickly. They're coming to arrest Jesus. The full plan of salvation is about to be enacted, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he says, you're not taking Jesus, and he cuts off the, a soldier's ear. Literally, and Jesus picks up the ear and heals them. And Peter is often the first one to speak up. And it's not surprising then that as Peter, now filled by the Spirit, after the day of Pentecost, is the first one to rise up in front of a large crowd. And he says, hey, people, uh, let me tell you about this Jesus. I'll fill in the blanks for you just a little bit. But, you know, in history, Peter was the guy who was denying Jesus just a few hours earlier, a few days earlier. But now he's standing in front of the crowd with boldness. He says, this Jesus was dead and you killed him. I'm not afraid of you anymore. There's a boldness in him to witness. 
And I'm going to proclaim him to you. And your best move today, your best move is to repent and believe. That's your best move. So he's boldly proclaiming. And one by one, we could tell stories of all the apostles who kind of had some pre-Jesus cool moments. But after they got the gift of the Holy Spirit, it changed everything. And God ushered into this new movement of Christians, we can call it the church, the activity of the Holy Spirit. And it shows up everywhere in ways we both can define and discuss somewhat objectively and in ways that are very subjective and sometimes hidden and we can't even really fully describe it. it he works all the time in varieties of ways in the body of Christ. He has worked in your life without a doubt. Sometimes you may have known it. Other times you did not know it. And as this church got moving, Paul, the apostle, rises up through a unique move of God's spirit. God arranges some circumstances, some, some incredible moments, as well as some kind of quiet moments for Paul. And Paul rises up as a leader. God has gifted him to lead. He's gifted him to be an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12, but God called Paul to be an apostle. And he starts these works. And Paul regularly writes to the followers of Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting, when he writes to them, he makes it clear that if you're a believer, you already have it. So that's true. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that God baptized you by his spirit when he brought you into the family. You were baptized by the spirit into the family of God. But to those very same people, Paul consistently says, you need to be filled up with the spirit. You need to be filled up with the Spirit. In fact, one of my favorite passages where he does this is Ephesians chapter 5, there on your message notes and on the screen. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that had begun in the book of Acts through some profound things and a dramatic move of the Holy Spirit. So that's how it begins. Here's what he says to them. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So we live in a rough world. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So now he's going to tell you what the Lord's will is. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So evidently in the Ephesians church, when people were under stress, when they were feeling anxious, they often evidently must have turned to wine. And when they did, many times they drank to excess, and when they drank to success, many times debauchery followed. In other words, things haven't changed much. That's what that means. And Paul says, yeah, I get it. I get why you would do that. However, followers of Jesus, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, now here's the opposite. You're trying to deal with your stress. You're trying to do it. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And some 30 different times in the New Testament, in addition to this passage, Paul in one form or another says, hey, followers of Jesus, be filled with the Spirit. Don't walk after the flesh. Walk after the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Several forms of you believers need the Holy Spirit. And I've been postulating to you all through this message series that that is exactly a relevant word from God's word for us today. It is objectively true that followers of Jesus need to be filled with the Spirit. 
that both statements are true. You have been both baptized by the Spirit, so every believer is baptized by the Spirit, minimally into the family of God, but still, every believer needs to be filled with the Spirit. So this brings me to an interesting biblical teaching for the next few minutes because it's a little bit more complex than it first appears. And the Bible is written in 66 different pieces of literature, Old and New Testament. Some 38 authors over several thousand years, two to three thousand years. Um, it's a complex piece of literature. There's a unified story, the story of God's work in salvation. But God chose to use human authors to accomplish his infallible purpose in the word of God. So when you read the Bible, in one sense, it's a piece of literature and has to be read like literature. In another sense, it's a, the very words of God and needs to be handled with sobriety and seriousness because it's the very word of God. And we have two primary writers in the New Testament, Luke in the book of Acts, and then Paul in about two-thirds of the New Testament who talk about the move of the Spirit. And while they agree unanimously on the need for the moving of the Spirit, and while they agree unanimously that work cannot be done without the work of the Spirit working in you to do the work, they don't always use the same language to describe exactly what's happening. This didn't seem to be a problem in the New Testament church, that you could use different words to mean similar things and sometimes same words to mean different things. For instance, you could use the word baptism to describe being dunked underwater, and you could use the word baptism to describe the coming of the Spirit in an overwhelming way such that you were baptized into the Spirit. That didn't seem to bother people. Even though they knew that when you got baptized in the Spirit, it didn't necessarily mean you were being dunked underwater. It was a metaphoric use of the term. That seemed to be fine. And then Paul comes along in the New Testament, written probably before Acts, Paul's letters were, and he talks about this being filled with the Spirit. Paul doesn't use the word baptized by the Spirit except for one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where you're baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. His term is being filled with the Spirit. And when people read Paul and they read Luke, it seemed to be perfectly fine for them. Fast forward 2,000 years. Everybody in this room, you've inherited a Western intellectual tradition where we like arguments of potential conflict to be spelled out for us in absolute terms. We prefer what they call linear thought. First this, then this, then this, then this, then this. That's kind of a Greek way of thinking. We get that from Aristotle and Plato and those guys. He make logical arguments point after point in a linear fashion, starting here, ending here. And anybody who gets here can look back and go, oh, I see the progression of your thought makes sense to me. It works great if you're Greek. The New Testament writers weren't. They're more what we would call Eastern in their mindset, which is kind of thought chunks together, not necessarily linearly defined. They were much more verbal but not necessarily logical in the linear sense. And some of that makes its way into the New Testament. And it confuses something that my hope today bring, I bring clarity to, which is, what is meant by the phrase baptism in the Spirit? This is a good phrase for Paul. It's a good phrase for Luke. And what is meant by the phrase filled with the Spirit? 
This is a good phrase for Luke. He uses it. It's a good phrase for Paul, and he uses it. I want to start with you on your message notes and give you, I think, five indicators that the Spirit is working in fullness in a person's life. And then I want to talk about language and how we use it in this church. What I can't do is explain how every Christian uses these phrases. But I can explain to you what I think is a healthy way to move forward and kind of clear the fog of some of the conversation that happens around things of the Spirit. A fog that I think is not helpful. A fog that I think confuses things and makes the conversations cumbersome such that here we are needing the Spirit, but the way we talk about it actually brings confusion, and that confusion actually begins to shut us down from openness to the things of the Spirit. My whole hope today is to bring clarity so that there would be an openness to the work of the Spirit. When I go through these next five blanks, I'd like you to do a quick inventory. I'm going to define, I think, five things that are present when the Spirit of God is working fully in a person's life, when a person is filled with the Spirit. And as I go through these, I'd like you to do a quick inventory on a scale of 1 to 10. It's very subjective. It's just about you. Don't judge the person next to you, all right? But just ask yourself, are these things present in your life? To the degree that they are, I would say you're walking in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, I didn't make these up, by the way. These are pulled from Scripture. I'll share some of those. And the degree to which these five things aren't present, I would suggest to you, and I'm not trying to judge you, there might be more room for the Spirit of God to work in your life. In other words, you might need more of the filling of the Spirit. I don't say that in judgment. Before I even go down the list, i got to let you know there are times when I've clicked on like four of the five. Almost at any point in my journey with God, I can find one or two at work. But it's rare for me to have a constant sense of the fullness of God in my life. In other words, your pastor has to be regularly filled by the Spirit. I leak. Sometimes I leak with spiritual things because life gets in me and my eyes for the world are bigger than they should be. And sometimes I leak because it has nothing to do with the world outside me. It's just to do with in my heart there's a battle. And sometimes when that battle rages, the wrong side gains a little ground. That's just the truth. I'm certain there's pastors in this town for whom that is not true. And you should probably go to that church, find one, right? Because I struggle sometimes. Sometimes I leak because people who are Christians, I let my guard down in a way that sometimes isn't healthy, and they come in, and rather than caring for this openness that I have, they, they stomp on it. At least that's my experience. And it just, it leaves me a little bit closed to God's stuff and to the spiritual stuff. But when I read the scripture and I hear Paul and, and Luke encourage followers of Jesus to be filled with the Spirit, these things consistently show up. So here we go. Number one, ask yourself, do you have great joy in God and in the things of God? Do you have great joy? This seems to be one of the most obvious and most repeated indicators that the Spirit of God is working in an individual. They are literally filled with joy as they're filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't necessarily know what that looks like in a personality. I don't know if that means they just start laughing. That's how some people say it looks. I don't know. I'm not certain that's the best, but it could be one of an indicator of being filled with joy. 
Other people seem to be filled with joy because they, um, they seem to have this peace and calm and contentment in the middle of ridiculously difficult circumstances. It's like the circumstances don't penetrate and they're able to have confidence and joy in the middle of craziness. I, I don't know, but repeatedly the Bible says that people who are being infused and empowered by the Spirit have the joy that comes from being connected to God and God's stuff. I started with this one because can I, can I tell you as a pastor, for me, here's something I know to be true because the scripture tells me, and I know it to be true because of my experience, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And if the Holy Spirit is there for empowerment, it's not a surprise to me that when the empowerment shows up, it looks like joy, or when joy shows up, it looks like there's power for living the Christian life. Most of you, like me, who've had bad experiences in church with Christians, you've had it in part because that Christian was devoid of joy in the journey of following Jesus. And their lack of joy spilled over into, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, into bitterness and vile content for the things of God or for the people of God or perhaps for you personally. And what they needed more than anything else was not a change in circumstance. They needed to be filled with the Spirit of God with an overflow of joy in their life. Because when joy is in the heart, it tends to show up in the speech and in the attitude and the actions. We're going to talk about how to be filled with the Spirit in a moment. But before we get there, I think it's important to know what it might look like if it comes. So, if you are today saying, I'm about a 1 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10 on the joy factor in my relationship with God, I just want to, without judging you, say... You need to be more filled with the Spirit. A couple of these directly apply to me as I was preparing. And the truth is, is I need to be more filled with the Spirit. I need to take Paul's words regularly that in times of stress, don't turn to other devices, turn to the Spirit. And in other places, Ben, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Don't quench the Spirit of God. My hunch is that's not just for me, it's for you as well. Here's the second indicator that the Spirit of God is operating in fullness in the life of a believer. There is power for overcoming besetting sins. The work of the Spirit sets itself against the work of our enemy and sets itself against the Spirit of this age, such that when the Spirit of God is at work in you, it's not that you're elevated to a plane where you're not tempted. No, 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 you're still tempted. But the temptations that used to grab you and pull you down no longer have the power they used to have because the power of the Spirit is operating in contrast to the power of the world, the power of your own flesh, the power of the pull of temptation, and you're able to walk victorious in the middle of temptation. This is actually God's design for you as a follower of Jesus, as his son or daughter, that while you're tempted, he makes a way out of the temptation. You're not completely overcome by sin. So for both addictive kinds of behaviors and incidental kind of behaviors, when the spirit of God is fully at work, there is an added power to walk in actual victory. I don't mean because you're a child of God, get to go to heaven no matter what happens. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying on this earth, you actually have power to step over those temptations. So if it was anger being expressed in your words inappropriately, when the spirit is full, you may still feel the anger, but instead of expressing it inappropriately, the spirit of God reigns in the tongue. This is what James says in the New Testament. That whole language about reigning in the tongue isn't just about self-will. 
There's some of that in there. But it's about the spirit working in you to keep your tongue from literally setting your life on fire in the worst way. That's the work of the spirit. And if you don't have power for overcoming besetting sins, Paul said, let us lay aside every sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race set before us. If that's not your case, I just want to submit to you that you probably need, like I have often needed, a fresh infusion of the Holy Spirit in your life. And number three, empowering boldness in your witness. This might be the clearest indicator. In fact, I want to direct your attention over here to this sign, the first one over here on my left. It's Matthew chapter 28. It's the Great Commission. It applies to every believer. All of us have these marching orders from Jesus. All four Gospels and the book of Acts record these words in very similar fashion. And it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you, Jesus says, even until the end of the age. Our marching orders are that we are not just Christians surviving and waiting to die or waiting for Jesus to come back. No, 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 no. We have been commissioned to do ministry in this world, not just pastors, every one of us. One of the great doctrines of the Reformation that all believers are priests unto God. We're all called into ministry. I just want to submit to you that if you're not walking in boldness as a witness to the things of God in your life to the world, then you might need more of the Spirit in your life. I'm not talking about your personality. Ben, you understand I'm an introvert. Okay, good. There were 12 disciples. I'm certain one of them was an introvert. And Jesus still looked at them with boldness and said, I'm going to give you power to go be my witness so what does a witness do? A witness doesn't manufacture facts. A witness simply testifies. Testify. There's a good Christian word, but it's borrowed from the courts. A witness testifies to the things that they know to be true. And the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit is free to work in your life, you're going to have a boldness to witness to what you know to be true about the things of God in your own life. And maybe you won't be bold to give a reasoned argument for all the different nuances of theology and culture in the culture wars that we live in. I don't know. But you will be bold to speak at the right time and in the right ways with some frequency to the work of God in your own life. To people who don't have the work of God in their life, or maybe it's those that do that need encouragement. There will be power and boldness to witness. Whenever the Spirit of God showed up in Acts and in the writing of Paul, there was a boldness for witness. If it isn't there in your life, it could be that the Spirit of God to some degree is restricted. And in order to release that, what you need is a filling of the Holy Spirit. All right? Number four, there's an enthusiasm of the heart for the worship of God. Almost everywhere you see... The Spirit being released in baptism of the Spirit or fullness of the Spirit. Almost everywhere, there's some accompanying, if you give me just a little latitude with words here, a little accompanying of the lifting of the eyes towards heaven and going, oh my goodness, you're amazing. Which is the simplest definition for worship. God, you're amazing. This world has its glare, its attention, and it gives off its light, but compared to you, it's nothing. And everywhere the Spirit of God is flowing in fullness, there is in that person an enthusiasm for the worship of God. And I mean the worship of God, not just the singing, although it certainly includes that. In fact, it might be the largest part of it. 
singing and worship go hand in hand. They're like first cousins in the Bible. So to say you're a worshiper, but you don't like to sing, okay, good, that's your preference. But in the Bible, they always go hand in hand. Always. I mean, I'm not making that up. We could be silly about it. If you're the one exception, good for you. Awesome. But there's an enthusiasm for the worship of God, which can include your lifestyle, of course. But I specifically mean the regular turning of the attention away from the things of this world to the things of God. So that if the things of the world have your attention and your heart, it's fair to say that at that point, you're not walking in the fullness of the Spirit. And you and I need to be infused with the Spirit of God. And when that happens, one of the signs that will be proof to you that it happened is, is that when God's people get together and they worship, something in your heart shifts. I'm trying to be careful with my words to not describe for you what it must look like in your life, but I want to be very clear that the thing I'm trying to describe, that worship gets elevated, is a non-negotiable. What it looks like in your life can affect certainly be filtered through your personality and other things, but there is an enthusiasm for the worship for God. That's why whenever you read these old dead theologians about their moments with God, it's almost as if they break through in worship. They'll be writing, and all of a sudden, it's like they break into poetry. One of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of John Calvin, you read this in his writings, probably one of the most linear, um, excellent, systematic theologians that ever lived. You're welcome to disagree with me. I certainly enjoy him. But regularly in his writing, he breaks away from this linear thought, and he just starts talking about the awesomeness that is God. That's what happens when the Spirit of God is flowing. God's awesomeness gets elevated consistently. Number five, there seems to be an incredible effectiveness that comes when you begin to serve the local body of Christ. Uh, there's a couple ways we could word this. That is, you're using your gifts, and there's a heightened ability so that there's an effectiveness there. You could say it this way, that the love that Jesus put in you finds easy expression as you love other people in the body of Christ. So they, in the passage we read, they sing and they make melody in their hearts unto the Lord. And then Paul breaks out in that last sentence, that we read in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. But all of these things were done in the community of one another. So let me give you a couple of statements in terms of clarifying biblical language to hopefully open the door, all right? So number one, underneath those five things, the phrase baptized with the Spirit to describe this thing is used by John the Baptist in all four Gospels, it's used by Luke, and it's used by Paul. On the screen, not on your notes, the phrase baptized with the Spirit, I believe, is used differently by Paul and by Luke. But they have, both of them, a view of man's needs and God's actions that are basically the same. Paul seems to use it in reference to what happens when the Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, you become a believer, you're baptized by the Spirit into the body. Luke tends to use the phrase to describe a moment that happened in time in the New Testament. So, the next blank, Paul conceives of spirit baptism as the act by which the Spirit made us members of Christ's body. This is a once-for-all event that happens for Paul. But Luke sees spirit baptism as the initial filling by the Spirit 
after a person trusts Christ for their salvation. And for Luke, what happened at the day of Pentecost is both a baptism of the Spirit and it's also a filling of the Spirit. It's almost as if the words are interchangeable for him. And this is what creates some of the confusion. Sometimes when you talk to people who um, don't believe in the spiritual gifts, they say baptism happened at your conversion, and they're right. And people who do believe in often in the spirit gifts say, have you been baptized in the spirit? And that's a fair use of the word. But it's complicated because language and literature is different in the New Testament. So let's keep pressing through. Neither Luke nor Paul admonished people, by the way, to be baptized in the spirit. It was not something so much you sought as it was something that happened to you. So Luke records that people were baptized in the spirit, but later in Acts, he encourages people to be filled with the spirit. In the New Testament, Paul repeatedly tells people to be filled with the spirit. So the reason I'm making this point is, is that if somebody comes to you and says, have you been baptized in the spirit? That's an important question. If you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is yes. You have been baptized in the Spirit, into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So rather than answering the question, I always like to ask, what do you mean by that? If you mean, have I had an experience after my conversion, after I got saved, where I have been overwhelmed by the Spirit of God? All right, good. Now that we know what you're talking about, we can talk about that too. But I'm not sure which is the best language to use. So I like to understand what we're talking about. It seems like, according to some of my favorite theologians, and according to my understanding of Scripture, that both are valid. In our church, I prefer the language filled with the Spirit. I like the question better. Are you walking in the fullness of the Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Which by that I mean, are those five things we talked about being made manifest in your life? Was there a moment where they turned? And it seems to me that according to the New Testament, it would be normal for people who are already baptized by the Spirit into the family of God to have moments where the Spirit overwhelms them in some real way, where the work of God's Spirit gets an uh, accelerated use in their life. It's acceleratedly expressed in their life. I think this is what Paul means when he encourages people to be filled with the Spirit. So Paul means, have you been united by Christ? when the phrase the baptism of the Spirit is used? Have you been united by Christ, uh, by the Spirit, so that you're a part of his body? In that case, every believer is. But Luke means this. Have you ever been once so filled by the Holy Spirit that you overflowed with joy, had victory over besetting sins, were made bold for witness, that you had enthusiasm in worship, and were you effective in the body of Christ? If not, Paul and Luke would both say, you need that too. You both need in the body of Christ, which is a once-for-all event, And you need an infusion of God's spirit at work in your life. So Paul would have called this experience being filled with the spirit. And Luke would have agreed, but then he would have called the first experience of the spirit's fullness the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this can be very confusing, can't it? And that's exactly what I think the enemy means for it to be. So confusing that we just put it on a shelf and don't deal with it when in fact what God wants for all of us is is that we be open and seeking the full expression of God's spirit in our life. So you were given gifts at your salvation, but sometimes those gifts lay unactivated because we don't press into the things of God. So Luke and Paul agree that both new and faltering believers in Christ need a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So if you're stuck, it's time to ask God to fill you with his spirit. 
If you're not living an enthused Christian life, it's time to ask God to fill you with his spirit. Now, I'm running out of time here today, so I'm going to pick up where I've left off next week. And this is why I asked you when we started to give me several weeks to kind of press through this stuff. My concern all along has been that we would learn some stuff, but we would get so stuck in the learning that we wouldn't ask God to fill us with his spirit. So with that, I want to call your attention back to those five statements at the front of your message notes. Today, currently, in the last season of your walk with Jesus, is there joy in your journey with God? If not, God's not angry at you. You're not a second-class citizen, but you need an infusion of God's Spirit, and it's available to you. Paul would say to you, be filled with the Spirit. Is there power for overcoming besetting sins, or do the same things keep tripping you up? It's okay. You're going to heaven, but that's not the life God wants for you, so be filled with the Spirit. Is there enabling boldness in your witness? Are you witnessing at all? If not, be filled with the Spirit. Is there enthusiasm for you to worship and to turn your attention to God and the things of God? If not, be filled with the Spirit. And is there effectiveness in your serving in the body of Christ? Are you serving in the body of Christ? If not, be filled with the Spirit. Next week, we'll finish up our discussion about how to get clarity around these terms. But let's just put the terms aside. And let me just ask you, how is your spiritual life going? Are you stuck? Something got a hold of you that doesn't need to have a hold of you? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't turn to other things to take away and satisfy. Don't turn, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to all kinds of excess and all kinds of challenge in your life. Seek the Spirit of God. And what it's going to look like and how it shows up in your life, that's between you and the Lord. The scripture gives us some of that. I've given you five big categories. What it shows up like in your personality and in a moment of time, are you overwhelmed with emotion or is there more ahead thing? That's between you and the Lord. Your job and my job is to seek the fullness of God's spirit. So I want to ask you something. It was what the disciples asked the people in Acts chapter 19. You can read it. Acts 19. You might want to write this down because it's a powerful question. Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit since you believed? They came up on believers who had been baptized in the body of Christ, according to Paul. And the question to them was, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit since you believed? That's right there in your Bible, Acts chapter 19. So have you? Have you received this great joy and this power to overcome besetting sins? And have you received an enabling boldness since you became a believer? And if you have, are you there now? Because this is God's heart for you. What we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to take some steps. We're going to take our offering, and then we're going to take communion together as a church. So I would ask you to take out your Connect card, and let's see if we can take some steps together. And I think you'll understand, and hopefully you'll give me grace to complete this message uh, next week. If not, that's okay. Email me. I'll do my best to help you probably ask you to listen to next week would be my first step. And um, 
we'll take some steps together right now. And then Will and the band are going to lead us in a song we've been doing the last couple of weeks. It's a prayer that basically says, God, would you fill me? Would you fill me? And if that's you, I'd ask it not just to be words on a screen or even words out of your lips, but it would be the prayer of your heart. So next step base says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. I want to be clear with you that the Jesus beside of you, the Jesus you add onto your life, it can help a little bit. But Jesus said the real work of God is, is when the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life. And that happens when you become a child of God. You are baptized in the family of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. By the Holy Spirit, you're sealed. You're identified as one who walks with Christ. And if that hasn't happened to you, the Bible says that can change in a moment when you acknowledge that the work Jesus did for you is sufficient. He gave his life on a cross. He was resurrected from an empty tomb. And if you want to trust the work that Jesus did and those actions on your behalf, you can trust that, and that makes you a child of God. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. And when the offering buckets come around in just a moment, you just put that card in there. And the minute when we pray, you do some business with God that says, God, save me. Save me. Wash away my sins. I want to follow you with my life. Or next step B, I want to be baptized. This is in water on October 13th or December 8th, our next two baptism moments. It's a powerful, powerful moment when we acknowledge the washing of the sin as well as the immersion into the body of Christ that occurs when you gave your life to Jesus. And the next step C, pray this prayer. Father, I need you. I believe you want to fill me all the way with your Holy Spirit. I ask you to fill me now. So I'm going to pray that prayer every morning this week because I leak. I need it. I can't do what he's called me to do. I want you, if you don't mind, if you're feeling so inclined, to check the box. We'll send you the email, and it'll remind you to start your day. God, whatever work of the Spirit you want to do, that's what I'm open to. And then we'll try to bring some clarity next week to some of the terms, all right? And the next step, D, it says, I want to be a part of Grow 3, Discovering Your Design. This is where we help you identify some potential spiritual gifts that God may have given you and explain to you a handful of places where perhaps you could uh, find expression of those uh, in your life. And the next step, he says, I'd like to talk to somebody about hosting a small group this fall. So hosting a small group doesn't mean that you're a leader or a teacher. It means that you have the ability to gather some people in your home or in a restaurant, perhaps, and help facilitate conversations. That's all you've got to do, and we'll help you at every step of the way. If you'd like to be a part of that, check the box, and um, we'll communicate with you. So why don't you set that aside? If you call this church home, I want to give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. <clears throat> so Pastor Joseph told you three weeks from now is our food truck rally. And when people walk through our door, the building will be clean. Uh, if it's at all warm outside, the air will be on. If it's cool, the heat will be on. They'll go to the bathroom. There'll be toilet paper. They'll take their kids to class. There will be curriculum printed and prepared for them. There'll be snacks. You know how that happens? Because people like you believe in the ministry of this church. You believe that when the word of God is preached, when people have a chance to worship, when there's a warm welcome, which is nothing more than expression of the heart of God for people, that those are essential ingredients for people's lives to be changed. And I'm very, very grateful for the generosity of this church. Next week, we're going to talk about our Food Truck Rally a bit and how God wants to use it in the life of our community and how you can be a part of that. But before we even get there, before we get to celebrating 15 years, it's right to acknowledge that so many of you have faithfully carried the, the weight of this ministry through serving, through praying, through giving. And God has done some amazing things. So just thank you. 
Thank you for giving your dollars and your pennies, which are temporary. You're not going to take it to eternity with you. Using your dollars and pennies to make an eternal difference. God will take those things and he'll turn them to spiritual fruit. And he's done that here repeatedly. Your money is not wasted. Thank you. Let's pray about our next steps. Let's sing this song and then I'm going to get up and direct us in our time of communion. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. And God, I um, confess that we come humbly to the texts that we've investigated today. We don't assume to have your full mind. And so the truth is, God, even in reading your word, we need your spirit to illuminate us. God, my prayer today would be that you would help us to both understand your word and receive it, but at the same time, be open to the work of your spirit. God, we pray that you would both illuminate our minds and open our hearts. Father, we need more of your spirit. Would you fill us? We confess we leak. Would you fill us? Some of us, Lord, the truth is, is we relied on an event in our salvation. We thought that was the end, and you've declared it to be a beginning. Would you fill us? God, I pray for a revival of joy in this church. I pray that there would be strength to overcome and walk in victory where there are besetting sins. I pray you would activate and anoint the use of gifts for ministry in this church. God, I pray there would be a, a, a renewal of interest in worship of you. Fill us, Father. Lord, I lift up the men and women who are declaring right now, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. I trust the work you've done. I trust in that alone to save me. And now, Lord, would you take our gifts, our next steps, and would you cause them to be an accurate reflection of where your spirit is leading us, to follow you with all that we have and all that we are? Would you cause our steps to go far and wide for your glory and for our good? We pray it in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.